Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning, everybody. If you would, go ahead, turn. It's, it's uh, behind me there, Luke chapter 4, verse 14, but please don't read. You won't usually hear a pastor say, please don't read your Bible. Please don't read your Bible yet. Um, I got to be honest with you. Um, this is not a joke. I would rather be doing this than that any day of the week. Sometimes people are like, you ever get nervous to preach? I'm like, well, I mean, as long as you just preach what God's word says, you don't have to worry too much. That's hard. That's ridiculous. Anyway, oh, no. Hi, I'm your pastor. Here are my children misbehaving and smacking each other with pearls in the forehead. Pray for them. All right, Luke chapter four. Um, just one quick thought. Uh, I don't have like a cute anecdote to like start. We're just, I, I'm just going to pray and we're going to start in Luke 4. And I don't want you to think this is like the pastoral cute little anecdote. Um, Karen Ant, because we were doing the little thing, she was like, you know, you need to dress up a little bit and you're preaching. So, so hence the tie. But I'm wearing new shoes. They're nice. Y'all can't, I wore them so none of y'all could see them when I stood up there. But now that I'm up here, I'm very quickly realizing these are horrible shoes for me to preach in. I, I'm, this is not exact. I twisted my ankle already once today in these. That ankle is now in a brace. I fully expect to twist the other one before this is done. When that happens, I'm going to go through some intense pain for about three minutes and we're going to continue preaching. And y'all think this is cute. I'm not joking. There's going to be a moment when this goes very, very bad, and then we're just going to all get right back to Jesus in the Bible, and we're just going to keep on going. I just, I want you to be ready for that. All right, so um, Brad mentioned uh, we as pastors were away in Louisville on a phenomenal conference. Uh, we were very, very well fed. He stayed with the Big Shots, one of the guys who puts it on, uh, to give you a context uh, if you've ever been in a summer camp situation, there are counselors and senior counselors. And when the counselors go to take care of the children, the senior counselors stay up late and they play and they hang out and they go swimming. Brad stayed up late with his big wigs and the pastors of the conference and stayed up late and didn't get back until Saturday and then officiated a wedding. And so that's why I am here. That being said, I'm pumped to be here. And maybe one day I'll get to stay. I don't know. Maybe one day I'll be like, hey, Will, uh, Maybe Robert will preach and you can hang out with me and talk to all the bigwigs. I want to know what you do. He's like, oh, we're having dinner. It's boring. I'm like, no, it's not. Y'all are, you're doing Jesus stuff, I know. But anyway, Luke chapter 4. Karen Ann was asking me, she was like, you know, usually when we're doing a standalone, you preach out of a psalm. Why aren't you preaching out of a psalm? And I was like, to be honest with you, I couldn't get past. I started uh, reading Luke. It was my anticipation to work through the book of Luke last week. And I got to chapter 4, verse 40, and I couldn't stop. I, I would pick it back up, and I could not read Luke 4, chapter 14 through 30. I wanted to, but I just could not. I was so enamored and, and I, I, I don't know. I was just consumed. It was captivating. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to read this text to you. So go ahead and look there now. And then I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to start piecing our way through it. Here we go. Luke chapter 4, 
starting in verse 14. And as I start, you need to understand Jesus has been out in the wilderness for 40 days. Those 40 days symbolic of the 40 days uh, in, in the wilderness, that, or excuse me, the 40 years in the wilderness that God's people spent when they did not enter the promised land because of a lack of faith. And the devil has been tempting Jesus. This is a fairly well-known story, especially if you grew up in the South, you've probably heard the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And as soon as that finishes, here's what we read, verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, like you're doing right now, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He, being Jesus, unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. This comes out of Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. Here's what it says. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captive and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Very short sermon. Pretty impressive. Sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? By the way, as I preach this, I want you to notice this. That's all they say in this entire text. Is not this Jesus' son? In other texts, they say more, but it's the same thing. Isn't that Mary's son? Isn't that Judas's brother? That's what they say. Like, it's this teeny little bit in this whole thing. And then here's what we find. And Jesus, uh, verse 23, And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up. And they drove him out of the town and they brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. I don't know if you see why I was so enamored and consumed with this passage. There's so much, in, there's, there's this whole situation where, where Jesus goes and like everything is going well. People are marveling at him. They're, they're, they're glorifying him. They're, they're, they're saying nothing but good things about him. Then he mentions a couple of things from the Old Testament, and everything just turns. And, and, and they're filled with wrath, and they're filled with anger so much so that they want to kill him, right? It's like, boom, huge switch. But then, and by the way, the things that he holds them accountable for, they didn't even say. They were things that they were thinking. And then they take him to the edge of the cliff to kill him, and he walks through their midst. We, some of you have probably heard this before. This is, I'm sorry, I'm working on it, B. Too close? 
Is that me? I'm not even moving. I didn't do that. <laughs> didn't do that. Hang on. That's one. Hey, all right. Hate this. <laughs> Every piece of me hates this. All right. What was I saying? Okay, so we've heard this whole, this whole concept of Jesus walks through their midst. It's like, oh, yeah, that's incredible. That's supernatural. But have you ever thought about this? Why didn't he just do that the moment they got angry? Right? Like, they have to go through this whole process of getting him to this hill, of, like, bullying and pushing him. And all of a sudden, he walks it. Why didn't he just do that there? And not only that, the thing he holds them accountable for is something they think. It's not even something they say. I read this text and I just can't get away from it. I'm, I'm, I'm enamored. I'm blown away with it. Now, here's the thing. I need to tell you three very, very short stories so that we can go on. Because when we look at this text, when Jesus t- talks out of the book of Isaiah, he, he says things like, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, liberty to those who are oppressed. And when he's doing that, He's talking like a Jew would have heard that and they would have thought about the Exodus, which is Exodus chapter 3. Don't worry, it's about to pop up right behind me. You don't have to flip with me. It's Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. And here's what we read. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. Now remember, proclaim liberty. Liberty, we hear this a couple of times. God is talking to Moses through a burning bush, and here's what he says. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. Listen to this. And I have come down to deliver them. When when God is speaking to Moses in the burning bush, this, this idea of I have come down, I've heard, I've seen, I've felt the suffering, I am intimately acquainted with all of the ways of my children. I have heard and I am coming. That's what people would have thought when Jesus started preaching that. But then we get this other neat story. All of a sudden, Jesus is no longer talking about that. He's talking about this widow from this weird place called Zarephath. This is about to show up behind you. In fact, I'm just going to read it. First Kings chapter 7. Are y'all with me? Am I losing you by telling you stories in the Old Testament? Good. That would be sad and depressing for all of you. First Kings 17, here's what it says. Now there's been a drought. If you remember, Jesus just said there was a famine. The famine came because of a drought. A drought for three and a half years when there's no water, there's no food. And here's what we read, verse 8, 1 Kings chapter 17. Here's the story Jesus is referring to. Then the word of the Lord came to him. It's talking about Elijah. Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he arose, and he went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her, and he said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your head. She's got nothing. And he's like, Give me something to drink. And she's like, the We're in a drought. And then he goes a step further and he says, bring me something to eat. And we find out why this widow was picking up sticks. It goes on. She was a little water. As she was going, he called and said, bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Verse 12. And she said, as the Lord your God lives, which by the way, is one of the most incredible statements because she was from Zarephath and yet she looks at this guy and she's like, you're a man of God. As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked. I've got a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. 
And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, don't fear, go, do as you have said, but first, that's the key, but first, make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent. Neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. That didn't happen in Israel. Why does that matter? Well, it mattered to Jesus when he was telling the story. And you've got to put yourself in the the position of this woman. She's a widow. Now, I don't want to read too far into scripture. She's a widow preparing her last meal for her child. In all likelihood, her husband succumbed to famine and death, and now she is preparing herself and her child. Like, picture that. Picture yourself outside picking up sticks to create a small fire so that you can make your last meal for you and your child. And then have a man show up and say, get me something to drink and give me the first piece of what you cook. And she does. And then we look at Naaman, our last of our three little stories. This is 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 1. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria... An enemy to God's people in Israel was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, whether he gave God credit for it or not. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. I'm going I'm to explain for a minute. During one of their raids or their battles, this small Israelite girl was stolen from her people. She became his wife's servant, and she looks at her, her, the, the woman that she's serving, and she says, your husband has leprosy. Why doesn't he just go to a man of God and get healed? Certainly, Elisha would heal him. So word gets to Naaman. Naaman talks to his king. The king sends him to Israel. And then we pick up in verse 9. So Naaman came with his horses and his chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Elisha doesn't even talk to the guy. He doesn't even open the door. He sends a messenger to Naaman, a commander, Right? Of, a, of an army that had just defeated Elisha's people. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, go and wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh shall be restored. Leprosy, of course, being a flesh disease and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and he went away saying, behold, I thought, don't forget this. I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Naaman said, the guy just told me, the guy didn't even tell me, the guy told a guy to tell me to go take a bath. Seven baths, actually. Why didn't he just like open the door and be like, in the name of the Lord. And they'd be like, like what? that's what I was expecting. So he gets all upset and he goes back home and they're like, what are you doing, man? Hey, he's, uh, pick up here, verse 12, are not Abana and Farfar, these are two rivers, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel. Could I not wash in them and be clean? If you look at the, the geography of this, it makes even more sense. It was a, an inconvenience for him. So he turned and he went away in a rage, but his servants came near and, he said, and they said to him, my father, 
It's a great word. The prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. And he was clean. Don't miss this. Naaman was willing to see the power in uh, the power of God in Elisha. This widow of Zarephath was willing to see the power of God in Elijah. But in Luke 4, God's own people do not see God's own power in his own son. You see that? That's what Jesus is saying, right? They look at him and they're like, you're Joseph's kid. He's like, yeah, I'm God's kid, right? And that's a whole bigger deal than being Joseph's kid or Mary's kid or Judas's brother. Your expectations are off, just like Naaman, hocus pocus, and then the leprosy's gone. No, 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 your expectations are busted. Let me give you three points we're going to look at today. I've already told you one. Number one, this whole sermon is entitled Jesus is. Number one, Jesus is the consummation of God's saving purposes. Karen Ann said, hey, uh, Will, is your sermon too heady? It's like, what do you mean by that? She said, we've been at a pastor's conference all week and you talk to Logan about the Bible a lot. I'm just a little concerned that your words are going to be a little big. I'd already made this point. Jesus is the consummation of God's will, of God's saving purpose. Consummation simply means the point at which something is complete. Jesus is the end all, be all of God's will and God's saving purpose. Why do I say that? Why is that point number one? Because when Jesus preached this little mini sermon in Luke 4, and he he talks out of Isaiah, people would have immediately thought about the Exodus. Well, what do we see in the Exodus? We see God say, I hear you. I see you. I feel you. So I'm coming down. Moses was a great deliverer, but he was not the great deliverer. Jesus is. The same thing is true of the story of the widow. What do we see? We see Elijah, let me make sure I got it right. Yes, Elijah show up and and be this incredible provider for her. She has a death sentence and Elijah provides. But what is that actually pointing to? It's pointing to the one who provides more than just food for us to live by, but food for our soul to live by in Jesus Christ. And they're missing it. And then he tells a story about Naaman and Elisha. And, and, and it's obvious. He, was, he had a death sentence too. Leprosy will kill you. And what happens? He goes, and the point is not that Elisha is powerful. It's not that Elisha is this great physician. It's that Jesus is the great physician that can not only heal our physical diseases, but our much bigger, deeper, phys- not physical, spiritual disease, our sin. And they missed it. Not only did they miss it, but it would be like you missing something that's right in front of you. It would make sense for Naaman to miss it. He was a Syrian. He wasn't a fan of God's people. It'd be, it would make sense for Naaman to miss it. He didn't get what he expected. He got a messenger, not the man, and he didn't get hocus pocus. He got a command. It would make sense for the widow to miss it. Somebody just asked her for her last meal. No, I'm going to eat 
My son's going to eat, and who knows, maybe it'll rain, but I'm not feeding you. Who are you? No. She realized that there was power there. And, and, and if you haven't picked up on this beautiful little truth that should serve all of us who are believers or are thinking about becoming believers, do you notice that all of that happens after their faith? Naaman's not healed and then goes and takes a bath. The widow is not provided for and then gives Elijah something. No, it all comes after their faith. What are people missing in Luke 4? What are these Jews missing in Luke 4? Why are they so upset? Point number two. Jesus is the identification of God's people. Jesus is the identification of God's people. Let me give you an example. Several years ago, um, this little oval, I think it's blue and yellow, bumper sticker, though it's never put on the bumper, it's always put on the window, started appearing on vehicles all across the southeast. It's a little sticker that says 30A, 30A. Y'all know what I'm talking about. Don't worry, I'm not going to bash you. I got Pine Cove on mine. Some of y'all may have a little SSI, a little St. Simon Simon. Okay, I'm not, I'm not bashing on going on vacation. Enjoy it. Let it cause you to think of heaven. Tell people about Jesus while you're there. That's, that's, that's not, so don't be like, oh, guard up. I'm not listening. I love 30A. We take pictures of our children on their bikes. Great, whatever. I don't care. It's not my point. My point is that these people in Luke 4 were identifying with the wrong thing. It would be like a family putting a 30A or a SSI or a PICA or anything else, putting this bumper sticker on their window and then thinking that that identifies them as a family. But here's the thing. It doesn't identify you as a family. You don't live there. You don't pay taxes there. Do you want to know what's identifiable for you? Your license plate. That little hot pink sticker, whatever the new color is going to be, because I have to get one in a couple of months. It's that thing that, listen to me, had to be paid for. That's your identity. That little thing, that's it. You can say I'm a 30A identity. You can say you're whatever bumper sticker identity you want to be. Sure, but that's for this little bitty, bitty, bitty time. Where do you live? That's your identity. And that thing had to be paid for. Now you could say, I had to pay my, for my 38 sticker. I don't know. Maybe you did. I, for all I know, they're handing them out. I have no idea. If you paid for it and somebody else got it, you have to deal with that. I'm sorry. But there's a difference when something legally must be purchased. Are you picking up the parallel I'm trying to lay down here? Your soul legally had to be purchased. Either that's your identity or it's not. You can say, hey, I'm in the synagogue. I'm in Luke chapter 4. I'm listening to Jesus, right? I spoke well of him. I'm thinking gracious things about him. That's just a bumper sticker. What happens when he says, it's either me or it's nothing? Jesus is the identification of God's people. It has nothing to do with being an American. It has nothing to do with being in the South. It has nothing to do with being a churchgoer. The clothes that you wear, the Bible studies you attend, has nothing to do with any of that. It's Jesus or it's nothing. Jesus is the identification of God's people. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Not if anybody is in the synagogue, not if anybody is in the church, not if anybody is into Christian radio, not if anybody is into Bible studies, not if anybody's in anything else. It's G- oh, Where's the verse? 2 Corinthians 5.17 There we go. It's Christ or it's nothing. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let me give you a question to ask. Are you defined by your response to the gospel? You should be. We are defined by the way we respond to the gospel. Now, here's what I love. Everybody look back in Luke 4. Luke 4, chapter 18. I'm going to ask you a question. It is rhetorical. You do not need to answer out loud. I don't feel like saying no, 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 like I do at you. Some of y'all would be more offended than a student would be. So I'm not going to do that. But I want you to actually come up with an answer to this question. Verses 18 and 19. What is the prominent word? Look, what is the prominent word? Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is the standout word? No answer. You could say liberty. It appears twice. Proclaim is the word. It starts everything. It's repeated the most often. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me for what? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me for what? To proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Here's the thing. They weren't interested in Jesus' proclamation. They were interested in his benefits. They wanted benefits without obedience. That's what's happening here. Jesus is the identification of God's people. Now, there's a million different things I could tell you about why Jesus is the identification of God's people. I'm going to give you three, because I'm going to give you three that they get absolutely backward in Luke chapter four. Number one, a true believer knows Jesus is everything. We sang it this morning when we sang um, my, favorite, uh, my favorite hymn, and now I can't remember the, the name of it. Be down my vision. Thank you very much. When we sing Jesus is Everything. A true believer knows Jesus is everything. They weren't interested in the proclamation of Jesus. They wanted signs. They wanted wonders. If you've done that in Capernaum, how much more are you going to do here in your hometown? And Jesus said, didn't you just hear what I said? I'm here to proclaim. I'm here to tell you something. We live in a world where our eyes inform us more than our ears do, and it's a tragedy that it is that way. If you, you, yeah, I'm getting ahead of my notes, but... It, it, It's just that way right now. They wanted the benefits without the obedience. They thought that they were in, in for all the wrong reasons. They thought that they were good enough because they had the I'm a Jew bumper sticker on the back of their vehicle that they had this little tag. They thought that they were, and I can prove it to you, if you drop back one chapter, Luke uh, chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, verse 8 says this, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Abraham being your father does not make God your father. Jesus being your brother makes God your father. A true believer knows Jesus is everything. There's true faith, there's false faith, and there's rejection of Christ. I'm guessing you're not in this room, you're not openly rejecting Christ. You may be. This would be an odd place for you to decide to be if you're openly rejecting Christ. And if you are, then I pray by the Spirit of God that his word would hit your heart and that that would turn. I think typically in this room, we either have true believers or we have false believers. And let's move it out from inside this room. But let's keep it confined. Let's just talk Southern church culture for a second here. It's a terrifying scripture to read 
when we read that Jesus says, depart from me, for I do not know you. Then you will come to me on that day, and you will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I do not know you. It's a terrifying scripture. The people are showing up, calling Jesus Lord, but they weren't living with him as Lord. It was a bumper sticker at best. There was no price being paid because Jesus was not on the tag of their vehicle. And, and like, let's just pause for a minute here. If you're a true believer, do you know how incredible that is? If you're truly believing in Jesus, do you know how insanely incredible that is? Like, you, right now, are a believer in Christ, and that changes everything from today for all eternity. That's insane. Like, like that's something to be praiseworthy. That's something to be excited about. I, and, and now isn't the time for me to unpack, well, how do I know if I'm a true? But, but, but I can tell you this. Or do you hate sin and not just sin that other people could see and cause them to think less of you? Let, let's just go with evil thoughts. Let's just take it into one. When you have an evil thought, do you hate that thing? If you do, that's incredible. There is no reason in or of you to hate that sin that is secret and in your mind. There's no reason for you to. The only reason for you to hate that is if Christ, if the Holy Spirit is residing within you so much that the moment that sin comes in, the Spirit of God within you is trying to repel it out. That's insane. What, a, what an incredible gift for us to be able to walk around hating sin, hating secret sin. A true believer, this is the second of the three things they do imperfectly, a true believer knows God's word and allows it to inform their expectations. A true believer knows God's word and allows it to inform their expectations. What were they thinking when Jesus said today? Like, think about that. The one, even though they may not have accepted this, who lived outside of time, has now stepped into time, read this verse and said, right now this is happening. Like, think about that. Real people with real flesh and real blood were in a real synagogue at a real time of day on a real date on the calendar. And Jesus stepped up and he said, this is it. God's known it from the beginning. It was going to be July 17th or whatever it happened to be. Today, this is happening. The problem is that wasn't what they were expecting. It isn't what they were wanting. If Jesus had just moved up in the scroll a little bit or better off, if they had known God's word better, they would have read this in Isaiah 49. And now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. Jesus came to rescue Jacob, Israel, those people, the folks with the Jew sticker on the car. And it goes on, that Israel might be gathered gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. I'm yelling. I don't mean to be yelling. I don't need to be yelling right now. I'm sorry. And my God has become my strength. Verse six. Then he says, it is too light a thing. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring it back and to bring back the preserved Israel. It's too small for you to just save the Jews. It's too small for you to just save the people in Luke chapter four. And it goes on, it says, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. If you are a believer in Christ, that put it back up, Josiah. That's talking about you. That's talking about you. 
2,000 years ago when Jesus said it, and then many, many more years before he picked it up, Isaiah wrote it down. And it was talking, what's your name? It's right there. He's talking about you. What do we do when our expectations don't line up with God's reality? This is what we had to wrestle with in the widow. This is what we had to wrestle with in Naaman, but they nailed it. What happens in Luke 4? Their expectations did not line up with God's reality. And we do one of two things. We either bow down like the widow. We either bow down like Moses at the burning bush when God said, I've come down to you. We either bow down like Naaman, hiding his pride and going and washing the river, or we bow up like these people. And it can be any kind of expectation. Certainly suffering. I didn't expect to suffer. I didn't expect this illness. I didn't expect someone that I love to have this illness. How do you respond when your expectations don't match God's reality? The status that you have, the influence that you have is not what you thought it would be. You had a desire for children, but you do not have them. The children that you do have do not behave well. The way that you're perceived by someone after a conversation that you had, you realize that's not what I meant. That's not, you're, you're not understanding. You're not seeing me. When you're betrayed by somebody you care about, when you struggle with that same sin over and over and over. And you say, I had this expectation, but it's not matching up with God's reality. What do you do? You either bow down or you bow up. And can I just tell you, if you bow up, there's not a lot of hope for you. It doesn't exist. Thirdly, a true believer knows how to be wrong. I'm going to move very quickly here because I want want to close out. A true believer knows how to be wrong. If you're married, if you have a job, if you've ever lived life with someone else nearby you, you know what it is to be in a conflict with someone. And we've all been there when we know we're wrong, but we would rather continue to fight to be right than be humble. We would rather our pride win then be humble and just admit that we're wrong. And you know it while you're in the midst of it. It's like it hits you. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God or just common sense pops you in the head and it's like, hey, you're a dummy. The thing that you thought was wrong. But you still just keep fighting and looking for an angle so that it'll stick. No. No. A true believer knows how to be wrong. Knowing that it's wrong to have an affair and not having an affair are two different things. Knowing that it's wrong to have an affair and not having an affair are two different things. Do you understand what I'm saying here? It's not just whether it's here, it's whether it's... Here's how I explain it to the students. You can know that God exists. You can know that this is the Bible. You can even believe that there's some truth in it. I know the Ten Commandments. I know this. I know that. But if that knowledge hasn't hit your heart, like we looked at 2 Corinthians 5.17, and caused you to become a new creation, if it's not in your heart, it's not going to be in your hands. If it's not in your hands, it's not going to come out of your mouth. And if it's not in your hands, and it's not coming out of your mouth, then it's not in your heart. What do you talk about? Whenever Karen Ann's granddad comes in town, we talk about Maggie, his little Yorkie. We hear about all the little shenanigans of Maggie, right? Oh, Maggie did this. You wouldn't believe it. She went and kissed this little person, and it was a We talked about it for 30 minutes. He talk, why does he talk about his dog? Because he spends time with the dog more than anyone or anything else, right? We got in the car to go on the pastor's conference. What did we start talking about? Zombies, of course. <laughs> why do we talk about Zombies. 
because somebody in the car was watching Walking Dead. I'm not going to tell you who because they might be ashamed of it. (laughs) So we talk about zombies because it's important to them, right? Let me do the pastoral thing where you're laughing and then I go deep. Do you talk about Jesus? (laughs) Do you talk about Jesus? What does that say about where you spend your time? Not just at church, not just in community group. Do you talk about Jesus because there's nothing else? There's nothing better for you to talk about. Finally, let me close here. Jesus is the salvation for all who believe. Here's the thing. I would say just about everybody in this room knows that. Jesus is salvation for all who believe. Will we get it? If I could underline, italicize, and just make it flash that word believe. Please don't lose me on this. Eyes up. Please don't lose me on this. Jesus is the salvation for all who believe. When they quoted, go back to Luke chapter 4 one more time. Luke chapter 4, verse 23. Jesus, perceiving their mind, says, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. Physician, heal yourself. Physician, heal yourself. Why is he perceiving that? Do you want to know the next time we see a proverb like that? Do you want to know the next time in Jesus' life somebody says, hey, heal yourself? It happens on the cross. The next time we see it, we see it in Luke 23, and the people stood by watching, but the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. Physician, heal yourself. And the next time we see that, this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And they say, physician, heal yourself. And at the very end of Jesus' ministry, as he is hanging on a cross, they look up and they say, physician, heal yourself. Not realizing that had he come off, not realizing that had he healed himself, they would have no healing available. Physician, heal yourself. Remember the word I wanted you to pick up on this. Jesus is the salvation for all who believe. Romans 1.16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation. What is the gospel? What is the gospel? It is something that is proclaimed. Proclaim. Proclaim. Going all the way back to Jesus saying, I'm here to proclaim something. We live in a visual culture. It's YouTube. It's Facebook. It's a movie. It's a video clip. Have you seen this? Have you seen this? Have you seen this? We've become so so enamored with using our eyes that we forget the power of using our ears and the method that God has used is our ears. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to the one who believes. Romans 10, I'm gonna drop down to 14. How then will they call on him and who they have not believed? All right, so how do we get here, God? I wanna believe, how do I get there? How are they to believe in him who they have never heard? It's nothing about seeing him. It's about hearing. It goes on. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel for Isaiah. Another throwback to Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has 
heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of God. If we looked at the same account of Luke 4 and Matthew chapter 13, we would read this. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Why was their unbelief there? Because they weren't interested in what he was proclaiming. They just wanted to show up for the show. Physician, heal yourself. Jesus wasn't sick. They were. If you, if you did these huge things in Capernaum, certainly you'll do it here with us in your hometown, but seeing is not believing. So let me close by asking this question. Then what actually held Jesus to the cross? As they're, as they're saying, come on down, Jesus, what held him there? If a crowd that wanted to throw him off the brow of a hill could not do it because he passed through their midst, what held Jesus to the cross? If a crowd can't do it, a nail can't, what held him there? The concrete will of the Father held him there. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What held Jesus to the cross? The concrete will of the Father. What held Jesus to the cross? Wanting to reconcile all people. Not just people that have a Jew bumper, stag, uh, bumper sticker or an American one or an Israeli one or a Pakistani one. No, no, no. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and people and language stood before the throne and before the Lamb. What held Jesus to the cross? A desire to reconcile all peoples like Brad just prayed over my own daughter what held Jesus to the cross joy held him there looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross he knew that being held there was better it was more joyful it was better just like the widow just like Naaman when we go through suffering today it is better there is joy what held Jesus to the cross? Because he wanted to show fools their folly. These, these fools in Luke 4 needed for all eternity to be reminded of what it is to be foolish, truly foolish. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. What held him to the cross? Love for sinners. If you are able to get excited and say, yes, I am truly believing in Christ, then you can look up and realize that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What held him there? It wasn't a nail. It wasn't a crowd. It was his love for sinners. What held Jesus to the cross? A desire that it would separate us from the world. That by holding himself there, it might cause us to cling to him and let go. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What held him there? That you would be separate from the world. And finally, what held Jesus to the cross? Knowing that you would be able to cling to him. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What held him there? 
Not just a desire that would allow you to let go of the world, but a recognition that if he held himself there for the will of the Father, for joy, for love's sake, to show fools their folly and to show that there is this new wisdom on earth that has nothing to do with where you were born or what blood runs through your veins, but only the blood that runs through his veins, he holds himself there so that you can actually cling to him for the rest of your days. Father, I I cannot assume that just because my soul was enamored with this passage that all of us would be, but I pray that by the power of your spirit it would be true. Father, I pray that that we would realize that all throughout history it's all been about you and that Our identification has nothing to do with anything but Jesus, if it's going to matter. And Father, that belief comes by hearing. Father, as we we have just looked at what held Jesus to the cross when he could have simply come down, may it humble and encourage us. May we realize that he held himself there for our benefit, but not our benefit alone. And that part of his death on the cross and his residing on that cross until his resurrection was that we would take this proclamation forward. That there is no hope apart from Christ. But that in him we have everything that we need. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.